Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. everybody. Welcome back to Podside Picnic. I'm here with Connor as almost always. Uh, the uh, the Prince Voltan to my... I'm screwing this up. You do it. <laughs> uh, should we start again or do you want to launch, man? <laughs> I, I think, okay, what, what Pete was going to say is that I am the Prince Baron to his Voltan. There. Um... <laughs> We've both been drinking. In fact, right before this, I spilled some beer. Um, that was th- so. There was kind of like a good fifteen minutes of conversation before this that didn't get recorded. I'm sorry, folks. That's the lost part of our ar- archive. Cool, lost audio. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, our our best audio ever is always like right before, <laughs> right after we record. Um, but yeah, anyway, this is we're doing a beer run later this week. This is not actually a beer run, despite appearances. This is yeah. You, you wouldn't know it, but uh, this is actually Flash Gordon, um, which is right up our alley on this podcast in so many different ways because it is a movie from 1980, which is like peak Pete, like early Pete era time period. It is one of those blockbusters that feels so incredibly distant in time and space and culture and tone and everything else now. Um, that represent the road not taken in a lot of ways for blockbuster movie making. Uh, and it is a piece of, call it whatever you want, camp, kitsch, schlock, pulp, I think all of those words apply, that happens to be science fiction. And it's science fiction mostly just so they can go off into space and, and create whatever little worlds they want for their purposes. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That's what we're doing. Um, and I want to kick this off by saying, Pete... Tell me this. Did you see this movie in theaters? I did. You did at nine or 10 years old? Yeah, I was like 10 years old and I went in to see this movie and like it's a completely different movie now because uh, like what would you compare it to Star Wars? So I went in and I watched this movie and I went out and I went, what the hell was that? In my best crusty the clown voice. I mean, you probably said what the hell is that because the thought that I was having is this is clearly a movie for kids because it's from an era when comic book movies were for kids. And this is a movie that's based on like one of those old golden age comics from like the thirties, forties, fifties, which flash Gordon was um, Mm -hmm. sort of like that comic book. Also like radio serial kind of tone. It's a movie for kids clearly, but it is also with no exaggeration. It is one of the most erotic sexual, like non R rated movies I have ever seen. Maybe including R-rated movies. Everything in this movie has erotic overtones and undertones. 
Like, there's just so much sex in this movie. I can't believe that, so, that like, you were subjected to that as a 9 or 10-year-old. <laughs> oh, well, it just went over my head, of course. But, I mean, the thing is, uh, like, I don't recommend anybody Googling this, but the amount of, of uh, porn homages to this is nothing short of awe-inspiring. Right. I mean, I totally believe it. And I also want to say, like, for instance, Sam Jones, the lead in this, um, you know, the sort of blonde, dashing Flash Gordon, he was, I think, most famous before this as a Playgirl centerfold. He was a soft porn star before this. <laughs> do, um, do you know who was supposed to be the lead? Oh, let me guess. It's not... Uh, it wasn't like our guy from Buckery Bonsai or something, was it? No, sadly. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I mean, Arnie would have been perfect for this, but I think somehow... Like, it would be a different movie with Arnie, right? We'd remember it well, differently. I mean, like, you had to be a scientist or a bad guy to have accents in this film. Right. You have uh, Ornella Moody doing, like, one of the absolute, like, most famously bad acting jobs ever. <laughs> I mean, truly, but it's, like, iconically bad, right? She's the daughter of Ming the Merciless, played by Max von Sydow, who's, like, one of... There's, like, two people in this movie that are doing, like, classically good acting, and one is Max von Sydow, of course, because he's always a pro. The other is Timothy Dalton, uh, yeah. who plays Prince Baron. And then I, I would say shout out to like I would give a shout out to someone like Fultan for and also Zarkov like those guys do a good job as character yeah. actors. Oh, Brian Blessed was marvelous. Yeah, I mean there's so there's some oh. good character acting, but there's like the the leads uh, Melody what's her name and Sam Jones they didn't really do anything after this. I think to this day, literally forty years later, they make most of their bread um, going to conventions as the leads from Flash Gordon. Oh man, that's got to be sad now. I hate to say it, and I hope they're successful, but like that's a that's a disturbing mental picture, frankly. But I mean, like you know, you could do worse. I have to say, like, it, oh. I think that's one thing I want to say about this movie is that it's so easy to make fun of, and it's been made fun of ad nauseum. Um, but I actually really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I really kind of thought I was going to. And we've kind of circled around a lot of different questions here without really getting into the the meat of the matter. So I think first I'm going to describe briefly what this is about if you haven't seen it. Um, so Flash Gordon is the quarterback, the dashing quarterback of the New York Jets. I know the Jets suck, but <laughs> you know, back in the day. So you. <laughs> well, I just think it's really funny that like that was what they picked for the it's like, kind of it's, it's a Joe Namath reference. Um, the golden age of the Jets was like late 60s, early 70s with Namath and Namath was also kind of a, you know, a playboy sex symbol. So it's kind of a, a Joe Namath riff. But, uh, yeah, he's the blonde, lanky um, star quarterback for the Jets. He goes on vacation somewhere kind of randomly. And then when he's flying away, uh, you know, Ming the Merciless attacks Earth. And there's a convoluted series of events that involve him and Dale Arden, the love interest, crashing into Dr. Zarkov's lab <laughs> on yes. a plane and then flying I in a rocket. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to insert at this point that I have reason to believe that Bing the Merciless is attacking us with that dashboard right now. It would explain a lot of things, dude. Yeah, it's true. Like, Bing the Merciless is up there. He's, he hit the, like, the pandemic button. Because you see, like, he has this <laughs> instrument. He has this instrument panel on his ship that's, like, you can press it for point at a planet and press earthquakes, you know, tidal waves, floods, hot hail. There's, like, a briefly a hot hailstorm. <laughs> yeah, like it hails for like three seconds and the hail is hot. Nobody even notices. So it's like, what's the point of that? I don't know. It's one of those movies. Like the first act of this movie is really just an incredible, just laughable mess to kind of get these characters into motion. 
it's I was pretty worried in the first like 40 minutes or so. I was like, is it all going to be this painful? But that scene in the throne room is so painful. Well, I mean, yeah, actually, that was my favorite scene in the first act. That You think of the scene where they bring they bring Flash and Melody and Dr. Zarkov in and, uh, you know, Flash finds a way to essentially fight the bad guys by playing football. Um, he has like a sphere that he like catches and throws and like runs through guys with it's just so it's just so hammy and campy and like again one of the problems we have in this show is we end up like overusing and conflating words like schlocky and campy and pulpy and like again just assume all of those precede everything that I say about this movie Um, but yeah it was sort of like all of that was just it, it felt like an even what it felt like was sort of a clumsier version of like Buckaroo Bonsai. And I was like, this is like a, a, a less charming Buckaroo Bonsai because where Buckaroo Bonsai was leaning into nerds can be cool. This was like, no, jocks are cool. This is a cool jock. <laughs> um, but it it improves, I think, after that, uh, you know, once things get into motion. And I'll kind of fast forward and say like, yes, you know, Mainland Merciless rule, rule, rules all these realms out in space, which have sort of human or humanoid uh, beings on them and he's the cruel emperor seemingly you know unchallengeable and lo and behold uh, Flash challenges him puts together a coalition of other aliens and it's a lot of fun I also think that it's really important to note here this is a rock opera right yes yes yeah. uh, so Queen did the music and we were like a millimeter from Pink Floyd doing the music so imagine how different this film would have been that would have been wow that would have been really (laughs) recognizable holy shit (laughs) oh can can i give you a couple more weird ones like that please this was nearly directed by fellini oh my god right really did you imagine yeah well i mean he did he did a lot of the artwork for the original flash gordon comics and so this film was designed to bait and hook him like that's why it was made and he didn't go for it. Uh, the other thing that happened here that I'm fascinated by is that George Lucas tried to option Flash Gordon because he wanted to do that. And they were like, no, we've got another plan for it. So then he made Star Wars. I was going to say, George Lucas is like, ah, oh, shucks. I guess I'll have to make Star Wars now. <laughs> so this, this whole movie is like a weird, it's, it's, like, it's like a multiverse checkpoint where things could have moved in any direction. And instead we got this. And that's not a complaint. I think this might be the best, best case scenario. But I did want to see Fellini's Flash Gordon, I've got to admit. I I mean, I'm with you on all that. I think that's what's interesting about this is like, it is this weird multiverse thing. It's also, I said this at the start, it's kind of the path not taken for comic book movies because this movie understands at a very deep level that comic books are for kids, that comic books are schlock, or you might just say stupid. <laughs> and this this movie just this movie just embraces all of that, does it to the hilt. Um, kind of in a similar way to Buckaroo Bonsai. Although Buckaroo Bonsai, I think, is a little bit more... Like, Buckaroo Bonsai is a little bit weirder. This is... There's not... This is very kind of square, honestly. Like, this is late 70s, but Flash Gordon is like... You know, Flash Gordon is a character... First of all, not developed at all as a character, and neither is Dale Arden. (laughs) Um, Not to say that any character in this movie is necessarily really developed, but, like, the two leads are especially underdeveloped, which I think is fascinating, and one thing that you, like 
you'd have to change that now. You'd have to have like flashbacks to Flash growing up on the farm or like whatever, right? Um, right. But like Flash Gordon, I think what, what struck me about it, he is like a character in 1980 where it's as if the entire 60s and 70s didn't happen. And this guy is like, you know, from 1959, you know, captain of the football team. He's the captain of the football team, but there's no inner darkness. He's just, he just is the good looking, dashing, unselfconscious jock who is just brave because that's what you do. And he really comes from a different time and place. Even from 40 years ago, he's from a different time and place. And I feel like there has oh, to yeah. be. Yeah. He was dated then. I mean, that's, that's a good thing to remember. Like this, this is a science fiction movie. That's not looking forward. It's looking backwards. It's looking to the, the era of radio series and, and uh, like 1920s pulp. It's just such an amazing artifact. And that, I mean, I think that's why it became a, such a cult classic because it's, it's neither fish nor fowl. It's barely recognizable to us in a good way. Yeah, totally. I, I, I and I think I keep, I keep comparing it to Buckaroo Bonsai because they can run around the exact same time, I think. But um, within yeah. a few years, absolutely. Yeah, it, it, it absolutely, as you said, like it's so. It, I mean, what, one thing that blows my mind, and I said this when we watched David Lynch's Dune that came out around, around the same time as this. Um, it blows my mind to consider, like you said, not only did this come out around the same time as Star Wars um, originally came out, but also I think what Alien was like the year before this. <laughs> so, like, I mean, you look at this and you're like, wow, this is so dated. And you have to remind yourself, you're like, this is dated. Yeah. But like this is after sort of I forget what do people call um, you know, that period of Hollywood from 1968 to about 1978 when you know, studio films supposedly hit their all-time peak or whatever. You know, you have Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now and stuff like that. I forget what that era is called, whether it's like just the, the new wave or whatever. But um, I, I think they call it the cool zone. The cool. <laughs> yeah, as you, as you can tell, I'm not a big cinema history guy. But I guess my point is just that, like, it's so funny. Like, oh, this is dated. But, you know, it's a long time ago. And you're like, no, no, hold up, hold up. Like. There were there were so many models this could have used from its own immediate time period in the, the like the previous especially twelve years um, to be something different if it wanted to be, but it chose to be this. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that one thing that I find myself really trying to process a lot is like the question of how self aware this is and in what what do we even mean by self aware? I think keeps coming up for me. As I was watching it, I think that some of the most satisfying moments are where the jokes really break through and are like, okay, this is, <laughs> this is, you can watch. And again, I say it's a lot of stuff we were in the show, but like when you can notice the creators having a lot of fun, then you feel like you're being, this is a very like 21st century way to look at it, but like you can, you notice the creators are having fun. You feel welcome into the fun rather than like they're staging this thing. It's over here for you. Um, it's not like over here in some distant, Percentium, it's like right there. Uh, I think a couple of those moments for me. I think my favorite joke in this is just uh, when Ming is getting ready to marry Dale Arden um, and his like, you know, getaway ship comes up and has a banner behind it saying, on pain of death. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, where it would normally say like, just married or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's it was like um, everyone, everyone is, is too... Uh, uh, I think it's all living beings are to celebrate this marriage on pain of death. Like there's two different things that go through. Right. Um, oh, okay. I, that changes a little bit. Cause I thought that that banner was just like, 
the joke there was that the bride had buried him on pain of death, but either way, it's oh. still like, you know, um, it, it, it's, it, the one that really pops out to me is like, uh, 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 Prince Baron and, uh, Dr. Is it Zoltan? That can't be right. Zarkov. Uh, Zarkov. That they're chained up on a wall and uh, Prince Baron looks over and is like, tell me more about this Houdini fellow. (laughs) (laughs) It's just full of these cute little moments. Like it's very, it's remarkably aware for like this movie, if it took itself too seriously, could have been one of the worst films ever made. Yeah. And I mean, it it flirts with that, with being terrible a lot. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think that a lot of movies, what we watched for this pod we always find ways to appreciate things, except for Alita Battle Angel. But uh, yeah, <laughs> um, imagine making that being sincere. <laughs> this is going to get us in trouble in our Discord again. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, I, I remember, for instance, watching The Last Dragon, which is a similarly uh, campy movie with my parents. And if you haven't heard that, our episode of that one, folks, Go back. We did a um, we did an episode on the Last Dragon with the lead singer Weedus, which was a lot of fun. Uh, and I remember watching it with my parents, and and my dad was like really frustrated because I was making them watch, you know, what seemed like a genuinely bad movie in a lot of ways. Um, of course, <laughs> I'm well. I mean, I'm sitting there like trying to find reasons to enjoy it. And I'm trying to sure. sort of get myself into the right frames. I mean, part of what we do in the show is like. We use our genre frames, so we say, okay, well, you know, we can't judge this. Sh- we can't judge The Last Dragon against, I don't even know what you judge that one against. <laughs> we can't judge Flash Gordon against Alien, even though they both could loosely be called sci-fi. We have to judge Flash Gordon against Buckaroo Bonsai, for instance, or against, I don't know, Big Trouble in Little China. Um, you know, that kind of, or a lot of other John Carpenter movies, that kind of movie. And... Yeah, I mean, with with Flash Gordon, like, I kind of found myself, at a certain point, I think a lot of that fell away from me, and I was just like, yeah, man, get it, go Hawkman. And I think on Twitter, we had a a great exchange. (laughs) Darv, yeah. We had a great exchange with Elliot Kay. Uh, Shout out to you, Elliot, if you're hearing this, because you posted that gif of the Hawkman, like, uh, Prince Voltan of the Hawkman saying, Darv when they're fighting with that space cruiser and it's literally a bunch of like flying barbarian dudes in, in that kind of swirling colorful space that flash Gordon does um, attacking this, you know, Ming the merciless Imperial battleship with their like little hot clubs and stuff. It's just so freaking cool. Uh, and it's certainly like for all of its cheesiness and all of its sort of like mid century practical effects, choppiness, it it's definitely aged a lot better than so many like CGI battles from now are going to age. And like, by that point you're just feeling it because like this movie, what it does is it just asks you to buy into, we're not going to develop this character. We're not going to do all this fancy shit that you guys want. We're literally just going to have Sam Jones riding this like hover, hover bike. Right. And we're going to blast <laughs> the queen like flash. Oh, <laughs> um, and it's just there's a complete like form completely goes over substance, I guess you could say, right? Like yeah, the there surface is, is no substance. There's and zero substance. Great. There's no attempt at substance. Like 
sometimes this movie wanders towards substance and it's kind of hilarious. I mean, there's like when the characters are asked to something morally substantive, like uh, Dale Arden, uh, to be, to be, to be clear here, I think Dale Arden as the female lead is just a wretchedly sketched character. I'm sorry. No offense to anyone, but like, it's horrible. (laughs) It's like how I drinking game for you. Take a shot. Every time she asks somebody to hold her hand. Yeah, I mean, there's just not a lot going on there, honestly. She does have a cool sequence where she, like, cleverly finds a way to escape temporarily, which is, like, thank God for that. There's at least some redeeming um, quality. She does get a great, like, you know, mid-century movie line at the end when Flash is like, well, he could stay here. And she's like, I'm a New York girl. It's a little quiet around here for me. Which is like a, that's like a black and white, you know, um, noir line or something. The funniest thing about this movie to me is that it passes the Bechdel test. When does it do that? Uh, Dale Arden talks to a slave about the alcohol for the planet of pleasure and convinces her to drink some. No men involved. I, you know what? You're technically, you're technically right. That's <laughs> fair. Very fair. Uh, so Barely good for Flash fair. Gordon passing the Bechdel test. <laughs> This might reveal a flaw with the Bechdel test because that does not at all prove that this movie is good with women. But, um, but I, oh the point that I totally detoured from that I was going to make is just to say that like there's a, there's a scene where Dale Arden's talking to Aura, you know, the hilariously uh, just I don't know what Ornella Moody is doing in this movie, but acting would be putting too fine a point on it. Anyway, they, they like they like pillow fight, which is hilarious. like pillow fight in this big harem bed. <laughs> Again, everything in this movie is, like, hyper-sexualized. There's no nudity, but, like, everything short of nudity is just so erotic, right? So, like, these two women are, like, vengefully pillow-fighting on this, this like, uh, you know, concubine circular bed. It's it's just hilarious. But, like, and then she, you know, uh, Aura is is uh, telling um, Dale Arden to, you know, betray Ming, poison him before the wedding. And Dale, and Dale is like, I can't do that. I gave him my word. <laughs> And it's just like one of the most, I don't know if the filmmakers wanted us to laugh at that moment, but you have to, because like, it's one of their stabs at like, okay, here's some depth for this character. Here's some like, here's sort of like an underlying moral theory for this movie. And it's like, I, nobody cares. Nobody believes that. Like, let's move on. The other one being that like when Ming asks Flash, like, oh, you want to rule earth? You want to be the, one of the, my vassal kings of, you know, of the humans on earth? And Flash, of course, immediately refuses. It's like, all right. Great. We created the moral dilemma for the character. Let's move on to the part where he's flying the hover bike, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I will say to anybody out there in Dale Arden's situation, if you're being forced to marry an emperor, like you, uh, your, your, your hands are completely untied. You can poison him, cut his throat. I don't care. You have my formal blessing. Waste him. Yes. If and this is an important point, folks, listen carefully to this. If you are ever sucked into an intergalactic uh, vortex <laughs> and you are asked to marry Ming the Merciless, morally speaking, you have my, our permission to kill him. Uh, the pod Absolutely. has given you that permission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, DM me and I'll put it in writing. That's totally fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, okay. I want you to think about who your favorite character is because I want to discuss that in a little bit here. I want to go back though to like how much sexuality is in this movie and how hilarious it is. Like just, there's a lot of little <laughs> random things. Like um, they go to the tree, the tree world, Arborea where the tree men live. And Prince Baron is of course the Lord of the tree men. Um, 
and there's a coming of age ritual going on and you can hear from the noises that the coming of age ritual is just, you know, uh, a young man having sex for the first time. And then he has to like stick his hand in the, the dangerous stump where the tree beast lives <laughs> that will sting you to death. And, you know, so he yes. gets laid, but then he, the, the kid, the poor kid unnamed, you know, sticks his hand in the stump, gets stung by the tree beast and Prince Baron has to kill him. Uh, the movie doesn't necessarily need any of that. It kind of establishes the culture of the tree men. If you're curious about their culture in this movie, by the way, I mean, and that is one of the charming things about this is that there's just so many worlds that are kind of being invented willy nilly and thrown out there. But um, that there's, there's little stuff like that. There's also the like, you know, fairly overt sadomasochism when they're interrogating Aura and torturing her. And then later, you know, the, the emperor's evil henchman is like, I think she rather enjoyed it. Uh, and that would have all been pretty taboo. It, it's all pretty taboo in 1980, I assume. And now we're just like, oh, yep, that's God, just that's yes. just sadomasochism. Move on, you know, laugh at it. But anyway, it's just dripping with stuff like that. Am I right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's it is uh, it is absurdly sexual. It is hammy. Uh, it's very. I I am of the impression that whoever drew the initial outline of this film was thinking of it as a serious film. And then, like, the actors or the showrunners or whoever it is is like, no, we got to clown this up. And so they did. And <laughs> I, I just think it's an amazing artifact. It is uh, – it's goofy. It's absurdly sexual. It's a rock opera. Like, who the hell did this? Like, the only movie that I have seen that I enjoy as much and makes as little sense – is heavy metal. Yeah, I actually thought of heavy metal without even having seen it. Um, that's what we're going to have to do at some point. That would be a fun one to do oh, with the guys. Oh, God, guest. yes. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, you make a great point, which is that like if you took the bare bones of this script, you could make a lot of different choices about tone. Um, and I think that a lot of those choices got made by Queen. <laughs> uh, it does feel that way, doesn't it? <laughs> like, imagine Pink Floyd was behind the wheel on this one. Uh, yeah, it's kind of unimaginable, honestly. Like, I, you'd have to, I mean, it, it's a little bit trippy already. I think you have to make it that much more psychedelic, and it would just be, I don't know what you would do with that. I feel like it would have to be a lot more arty, which, as you yeah. said, there were, sort of, there were sort of stabs in that direction with Fellini and stuff. Um, I, yeah, I can't see it. I mean, the, the Queen stuff, though, like, you know, what is Queen if not sort of stadium uh, you know, ballad rock. And they went all out on the sort of rock opera for this. And by the way, if you listen to the soundtrack, which I did, if you listen to the soundtrack itself, you can get almost the entire story just from the soundtrack. Cause there's a lot of dialogue on the soundtrack, which like when I say rock opera, I truly mean like the music structures, this film. I don't know if that was, I don't know at what point the soundtrack came into play, but you get the sense that like it, whether it was queen kind of leading this thing by the reins or just queen kind of reading the, the film brilliantly. Um, that famous soundtrack flash. Ah, uh, uh, I can't, I can't stop doing it. I'm doing it terribly, but you know, um, so I have a hot take for you. What's that? This was not queen's best soundtrack. Boo. I think it was Highlander. I, Oh God, I haven't seen Highlander. I'm sorry. Oh, well, they they made a soundtrack for Highlander that didn't get used. And so they just put it out as an album called A Kind of Magic, and it is so good. Didn't get used. Man. Well, see, that's why 
That's why Flash Gordon has probably endured more than Highlander has. <laughs> oh yeah, like you you don't use Queen. What like uh, I I think there's a reason why that film doesn't hold up. The series holds up. Highlander does not hold up. Don't at me. Bold takes. More hot takes on this podcast. See, I <laughs> I feel like sometimes pe- people claim. Uh, namely me, that we don't do hot takes. But if you go deep enough into our episodes, you will find us slinging some fiery takes. Um, well, yeah, I mean, honestly, if you've gone 27 minutes into this podcast, you've earned it. Congratulations. You can get <laughs> mad at me now. You have my permission. If you made the, I think, almost exactly 28-minute mark of our Flash Gordon episode, uh, yeah, <laughs> props to you. So, I mean... Flash Gordon, again, I really think that my final verdict on it is it's the ultimate triumph of sort of form. And I would also say tone over substance. Like you you have to take all these elements that could go in a lot of different directions and you sort of tonally decide, all right, ultimately what this is about is this sort of golden retriever guy on his hover bike coming to save the day. And that's literally oh. why Queen is like, you know, saving every one of us. Da, 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 you know? Um <laughs> That's literally all this is. It's the quarterback saving everyone. But I mean, in that vein, I think we need to treat it in that kind of fanboy vein. Who's your favorite character in Flash Gordon? Um, it's a toss-up. Either Ming, because holy crap is he chewing the scenery, and um, uh, Brian Blessed, the Baron. Which which Baron? You mean Volton? Yes, Volton. You're thinking of Prince <laughs> Die! You're thinking of Prince Baron. Anyway, yeah, Voltan is the leader of the Hawkmen with his big beard, sort of the jolly Falstaffian uh, archetype who initially, you know, rejects Flash, wants to kill Flash. Uh, there's a great. In England, his whole career is defined by one line from this movie. What's that? Gordon is alive? <laughs> Everybody remembers him for. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have a number of these. Uh, there's like, again, there's two actors in this who this is not even close to their most famous role, but then that's, of course, Timothy Dalton and Max von Sydow. The rest of these people, this is probably quite a few of them, it's their most famous screen role um, by a lot. So that's yeah. one of the, the great charms of this movie is how it feels like it kind of captures a lot of these actors sort of in time, and, and it feels like. You don't feel like you're watching sort of movie stars kind of moonlight. This is what they are. Like Sam Jones yes. will always be Flash Gordon, you know? It, it is what it is at that point. So two things I want to do here. I'm going to give you a, a piece of Max von Sydow trivia from it, which is that outfit he was wearing weared 70 pounds and he couldn't wear it more than three minutes at a time, which I think is amazing. Wow, his outfit didn't even look, look that big. Oh yeah, no, it, it was it was full of metal and wood and plastic. Like it was it was pumping up his shoulders. It was nuts. Uh, the other thing is right back at you. What what character is going to stick with you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, stick with me is interesting because again, I feel this is a very surface movie. So I think what will stick with me more are scenes, especially everyone's favorite scene, kind of the the Hawkmen fight in outer space. Um, Oh, also, God, it's so good. I also love the football scene, and I do love the scene in Doctor Zarkov's. <laughs> I love Doctor Zarkov's lab early on, before Flash oh, and, God, and yes. Melody and uh, Dale Arden crash into it because he has this like you know kind of chubby assistant who's like he Zarkov is trying to get him to go into the the rocket ship, and the guy's like basically says fuck that, and, like runs away. 
<laughs> which I think this is great. Like uh, sort of comic interludes like that with Zarkov. Um, but the, the scenes will stick with me. I mean, my favorite character is Prince Baron. Uh, Timothy Dalton does a great job. Kind of, he does a great job in that kind of like, you know, classic English sort of, uh, reminds me of Carrie Ellis from the princess bride, you know, um, so at the very beginning, when you that like we were actually right at the beginning of this, because I, I I totally like I'm Brian Blessed more than anyone else in this film. Yeah, I think you are. Honestly, that's why I said, that's why I said you're you're Voltan and I'm Prince Baron um, because Baron is like <laughs> Baron is good at things, but he's brooding and isolated, and he's very contrary. He's a contrarian about everything, even to the woman he loves, and. Uh, you know, he has to, he doesn't necessarily want to win, but he wants to sort of be the best and stand alone. I can relate to that, you know? <laughs> and, and I do like that. We've had a couple of drinks and we're getting towards the end of this episode. And I do have a confession to make, you know, my laugh, I got it from this movie. You stole your laugh from Voltan. Yes, I did. What? You've been, are you telling me that when you were, 10 years old, nine years old in 1980s, how this movie, and you're like, that's how I want to laugh for the rest of my life. I, I, sometime in high school, I picked it up, but like I started doing it when I was out hanging out with friends and I realized I could sort of hit it and then I liked it. And like, we're well past me making choices now. That's just my laugh. <laughs> I don't think I ever chose my laugh. I think my laugh is actually much more, high-pitched and squeaky than I would like probably prefer, but it's just, watch this movie a few more times, dude. I, I need to learn how to do that belly laugh. I need to laugh dia diaphragmatically and then I'll, (laughs) I'll have it down. Um, I kind of want to talk like, I don't don't know that we're necessarily done yet because I want to talk about like the road not taken here. Um, I like in your, you kind of lived through this in a way that I didn't. I mean, what, what the hell? Something that this has been a germane topic many times in this pod. What do you think, kind of off the cuff, like happened with comic book movies? Like, why and how do we make this shift from understanding that comic books are for kids, they're fundamentally stupid, and that they should look more or less like this, and move towards this horrible clusterfuck we're in now i mean i know it's a big answer over the course of decades but i'm curious because you kind of lived through that that shift i i have a theory um i don't know but my theory is gen x grew up like as Mm. we identified with comics and we love them and as we got older and we got in a position to be decision makers in these situations it changed the tone of the films and they started making money and like Marvel is not going to back off of that. Like when these things become blockbusters, that's it. You know, think about the transition between Blade, which was clearly a Gen X comic movie that didn't hit, and what started to happen after that. Like it it just somehow it, it connected with the American public. But even if it hadn't connected with the American public, I think that Gen X directors and even producers would have pushed us in this direction because they take this shit very seriously. Well, of course the king of taking comic books too seriously is Joss Whedon. As we've discussed his, yeah, (laughs) as we've discussed his influence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's absolutely like he, he's definitely the prime guy I'm thinking of, but there's a lot of people out there that, that would fall into that category. Uh, 
like who did the Star Trek movies and Lost? What's his face? J.J. Uh, Abrams. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, he's totally in this boat, too. Like, at the end of the day, that guy wants every movie to be a comic book, in my opinion. Totally. I, and it's interesting that, that sort of to think about, as you said, kind of the way the meaning of quote-unquote comic book has changed. Because what Flash Gordon... <laughs> graphic <is>, novel. <laughs> well, that, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a whole other topic, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, maybe, maybe hey, that's, that gives me a hot take. A hot take would be... This is much more Alan Moore's fault than we want to admit, because as much as we all revere Alan Moore, his role in making comic books into a serious medium can, I think, not be disregarded in analyses of how comic books came to dominate the center of our culture for the worse. Um, Yes. And I think there's one other criminal we need to call out, a man who I love, and that's Neil Gaiman. Yeah, that's totally fair, too. I think that those two... um, them and a, and a couple other guys, uh, what like Garth Ennis or whatever. Um, yeah, there's like a whole there's there's a few people I think who are crucially responsible, who are either Gen Xers or, young, or younger Boomers. Um, yeah, for sort of like legitimating all of this, and I think that like your your point is well taken. It's that Gen Xers, you're claiming I I think if I get you correctly, the Gen Xers our favorite topic on this show now apparently. Uh, <laughs> that's because we're so important there's so many of us <laughs> you guys are important and, and everyone knows i mean i'm glad that i'm out of the closet now as someone who listens to 90s music all the time um this is one of the things that you and i have in common is is our love of just yes. sort of generalized 90s rock but uh, to the point i, I think that you're, what you're positing is that gen x was the first generation to not want to surrender the media and arts of childhood and yes. indeed but not only did I not want to surrender them, I think this is the key point. You didn't want to surrender them, but you also wanted to legitimate them, which yeah. is an interesting, it's, it's, that's a very Gen X thing, right? It's like, we have to make it cool. It can't just be, it has to be cool. Um, and that has led to some really interesting, uh, interesting, and I think often deeply unfortunate chimeras of which the comic book movie might be number one. I mean, I've always said like, we can talk about comic books till we're blue in the face. And I have a lot of opinions on like different X-Men and stuff. But mm-hmm. I think I think at the heart of it, the, uh, the the quintessential comic book narrative is Superman. And the the most important thing to know about Superman is that he is not at all interesting because he is Superman. He's just a superhuman oh. who does the right thing all the time. This this is the Superman Batman discussion. Yeah, I mean, um, right. Earned ability versus inherited. Like I like I could talk all day about why I hate Batman, but fundamentally he does push-ups. And yeah, Superman yeah. doesn't do shit. Right, and I would complicate it by saying that like my favorite superheroes are the X-Men who, you know, they're mutants, they're born with their abilities for the most part. Um But they but also work at it. They work at it and they have there's just like I, they're also not all they're not all great people all the time. And the problem with Superman, I know I know that people have complicated Superman in a lot of different ways over the years, but the point is like Superman as he was conceived was just a superman. A guy who is super in every sense, including morally. And we're getting far I think we're pretty far from Flash Gordon now, but like that there is a really important point here, which is that like, you know, Flash Gordon is what what superheroes used to be, which is exactly that. The sort of golden retriever guy who he's good looking. He's brave. He's physically capable. He's a miracle. He's a miracle. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> he will save the day. Save every one of us. 
And not very smart, not an intellectual, certainly. Zero neurosis and zero self-consciousness, also crucial for this kind of character. Um, You know, the neuroses and the self-consciousness enter the comic book world at the same time that they enter sort of the American Imperium after Vietnam. Um, Oh, yeah. You know, the the inner darkness, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. But like this, I mean, this story is kind of impervious to Vietnam, right? This is a comic book story that's impervious to all the changes that were already happening in comics. And it's kind of impervious to it, it. It does not want to be permeable to what was happening in the culture around it. I mean, just the fact that Alien was a year before this is just staggering to me. But um, yeah. it's you know, I, I think that like we're talking about the triumph of form over substance. This is about as pure an instance of the comic book form, the hero comic book. As you could put on screen, it's this is like this is what it looks like when you just do it straight. Is that a fair statement? Yes, yes. And what's interesting is I I know people who would like uh, rabidly argue that it's not even science fiction. Like it's as far from high hard science fiction as like a hawk is from the moon. And like that's part of its charm is it's in it's in this weird before place. Like I view it with nostalgia and joy. But like I could see if I, if I were an adult walking into the theater expecting a science fiction film, I'd have probably vomited. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I think I said at the start, I, I think it's important to enunciate this point. This is science fiction only in the sense that it takes place in space. It takes place in space so that it can give itself room to do whatever it wants in terms of worlds. Uh, in terms of devices it wants to give itself, in terms of technology oh, and the spaceship. There's air yeah. in space in this movie. It's wonderful. Like, the science yeah. is so bad. Like, you'd, you'd have to be a moron to go through this film point by point and point out all the wrong things. Like, what a waste of your time. Like, just, like, it's pure mystery science theater. Let's go with it. Right, and also, like, you mentioned Mr. Science Theater. It's like, this is one of those delightful old movies that... They didn't even bother to go back and check their own. They didn't really even bother to go back and edit it early, by which I mean, like, early on, it's, <laughs> it's intimated that Voltan, the Hawkman, has, like, a daughter being held captive by Ming, and that's one reason he can't rebel. We never see that daughter again. <laughs> like, what even happened to that girl? She was, like, an important, she was an important plot device for a moment there. Doesn't come back, and it's like, you guys could have just edited that part out, but, you know. All right, whatever. We'll roll with it. Put it, get it out. Send the reels out. You know, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is a case where it's really important when we talk about sci-fi and fantasy generally to say that like I wouldn't recommend writing sci-fi or fantasy just because you want to give yourself a license to do a bunch of things. I think especially now. People like to be rigorous and catch plot holes and catch inconsistencies and tell you, like, I need to know more about this. We know too much about this. This is too much world building. That's not enough world building. You know, like, there's a lot of, like, comic book guy snobbery from even casual readers now um, about this kind of thing, whether it's a book or a movie or a video game or whatever. Uh, You know, this was sort of the era where it's like, all right, I have all this wacky shit I want to put in my story. Well, it'll be easier. It'll be easier to put the waggy shit in if we set it in space. So now it's in space. <laughs> right, right. It, it's it's just another world, and it, it's a world I sort of miss. Like I I think of shows like uh, God, I don't know, Lost or Westworld or any of those where the showrunners are trying to build something together, and you have a you have a a, a core of devoted fans 
who are line by line analyzing what's going on and posting what they think is going to happen next on the web. And I'm not like, they're having fun. I'm not saying they should stop, but it's very difficult to, uh, to have surprises at that point, to have weirdness, to have 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 the joy of something new, because like you you've got you've got uh, people trying to figure out the Rosetta Stone on every step you do, and like stuff like this from a previous era just didn't care about that shit. Could you imagine if this Flash was a series and that people were trying to figure out what was going on? How much luck would they have? Oh God, I mean, this is the kind of movie like. One thing you have to do now is like you introduce a character, you got to give that character an arc. Uh, there have to be stakes for that character, and like as we just discussed, this show does this movie does not want to do that at all. And to your point, by the way, I want to say you really hate Lost, don't you? I yes, and the reason <laughs> I hate it is that I loved it so much. Like the first couple of years, I felt like Sherlock Holmes, like trying to track what's going on, and the showrunners kept going. Your fan theories are wrong. Your fan theories are wrong. And the reason was they kept changing things on the back end as we figured them out. So it just eventually descended into crap. And I'm so hostile about that. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of a later show that uh, taught us that lesson over again, that being Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, right. I mean, there's so like, there is so much to be said here about the distinction between the kind of playfulness that used to exist in movies, which we just saw in Flash Gordon versus the sort of like ordered, very highly professional, almost management consulted uh, stuff we see now on TV where people are going to go ballistic if you don't square every single circle uh, uh-huh. you know, in your in your fictional world. Um, I... And, you know, if we saw this serialized now, we would probably both panic. We probably wouldn't watch it in the first place. So, I mean, nostalgia works heavily in its favor. I will yeah. say I had a really good time with it. And I recommend if people haven't seen it, it's worth it. Like, just, you know, fight through the first act and it'll get better. <laughs> after after you know, Flash this, dies the first time, it gets better. <laughs> this is always the immediate payoff of the pod for me. When I ask you to check something out for the first time that you haven't seen before and it hits, like that, that is pure pleasure. So I'm, I'm really glad you liked it, man. That's cool. And, and yeah, it was silly. <laughs> silly in the best way. You might say, Pete, it's a miracle. Yeah, we got it there. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks everybody. <laughs>